guys, welcome to this episode of the Weekly Dispatch. I'm Sean. I've been traveling this week through New Jersey and Pennsylvania, checking out the beach, and unfortunately I didn't get a chance to stop in at Jim's on South Street for cheesesteaks, but next time I assure you I will. We're going to be covering the week of the 28th of July through the 3rd of August. We're hitting all of the important topics in the news cycle and looking for all the upcoming stuff that's important to your week. Our podcast is sponsored by Paragon Recovery. Use the code CRONUS15 to get great deals on their products. Paragon Recovery keeps you in the fight through activating your recovery and sleep cycles and check them out and contact them for even more savings if you're a member of the military community or one of the many law enforcement agencies. Today's podcast will be focusing internationally on news out of North Korea. We're going to talk Afghanistan and the Taliban, some issues coming out of China, and then finally the recent Russo-American nuclear treaty that we just left. The U.S. news, America's news this week, unfortunately, we're going to have to talk uh, about the shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, leaving 29 dead and dozens hospitalized. And then we're also going to talk about the Democratic debates and what Medicare means. And finally, we will end with a discussion on economic topics this week. We're going to talk about the Federal Reserve, what overnight rates really mean for you and for banks. And then we're going to talk about the block proposals for Amazon's contract with the Department of Defense. Let's get after it. Okay, in global news this week, we are going to talk about North Korea. This is something that came up last week and we did not get a chance to report on it. But the Korean Central News Agency reported the news the country was prepared to test and deploy its newest submarine off the coastline soon. You heard that right. North Korea has submarines. Photos recently showed their president, Mr. Kim, visiting the submarine in its dry dock and inspecting the build. With its ICBMs and submarine launch missile programs, uh, regional allies around the Korean Peninsula and the Western democracies are facing a larger challenge uh, that's been posed now to that stability and peace in the region. We talked uh, last week about the Korean Peninsula with China and Japan and some waterways which are being... Uh, debated as to who they belong to. So this is just adding to the chaos. Um, this comes weeks after President Trump and President Kim met at the DMZ, if you remember, uh, weeks ago. And then on the same day, Mr. Bolton visited South Korea to discuss trade negotiations. So Korea was uh, a very heavily focused on in, in that news cycle. But we go back. In 2016, North Korea reported the first successful test of its submarine-launched ballistic missiles from the Pukguksong-1. Uh, that's the name of their submarine. And military analysts suspect that North Korea is trying to improve on a newer submarine to produce more missile tubes for launch and then increasing their attack measures. What we should note, though, however, is North Korea lacks a large, stealthy, long-range submarine capable of carrying a nuclear payload. The current Puck model has a range of 900 miles and it's diesel-fueled, so it, re it requires surfacing. And then as of right now, uh, North Korea's fleet is, is very small, about 70 uh, very, again, small and, and outdated submarines. So we'll see what that does for a naval presence with China in the East China Sea, as well as our own Navy as it comes through the Pacific. 
And for many of you in the military, you've been to Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria or know many of your fellow peers that have been. And so in the last 18 years of warfare, one of the things we have talked about at length is how are we going to leave Afghanistan in a better way than we found it, one in which does not have an environment which can harbor terrorism, which is going to affect the United States. And I remember back in 2012, 2013, we had the same discussion, and one of the topics that was posed to us by our command team was, what what if the Taliban became a political organization, which was contrary to everything that we had been training for, seeing them as an outright enemy that we had to obliterate. However, that is not the case, and news out of Afghanistan is that the United States and the Taliban are proceeding through some peace negotiations in Doha, Qatar. Uh, As of Friday, uh, the negotiations have shown more development. As new outlets report, the Trump administration is preparing to withdraw thousands of troops from Afghanistan. The withdrawal will be in exchange for concessions from the Taliban. Among them is definitely a ceasefire, and the other one is a renunciation of al-Qaeda. Speaking very quickly, though, about al-Qaeda, the U.S. reported this week, too, that Hamza bin Laden, the son of Osama bin Laden, was killed. Uh, Hamza was seen as the de facto leader of al-Qaeda. It's next, its bright future for the terror group after his father was killed in 2011 in Pakistan. Going back to that drawdown, it would also require that the Taliban comes to the table with the Afghan government to begin peacetime planning, something the Taliban has refused outright to do until an agreement is made with the United States and the other coalition partners for troop withdrawals. For the last 10 years, we've been seeing and hearing these rumors of an eventual end state for Afghanistan, but now that we're negotiating with the Taliban and they're seeing a political future in the country, uh, we, we could be seeing something much different for Afghanistan's future once we leave. With free elections in the country and a two-party system between the president and uh, the CEO that was set up in subsequent ministries, um, the problem is with the Taliban creeping back into the picture, as we've tried to establish a Western democracy, um, that relationship going back to 1996, when the Afghan government was initially overthrown by the Taliban, who by 2001 controlled 95% of the country, we now have an issue where the future of Afghanistan might end up going back to something pre-global war on terrorism. Um, and that original government that the Taliban had you know, after 1996 was initially recognized by Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and UAE, um, while the United States uh, supported the Northern Alliance. So if you've seen 12 Strong, uh, that, that's what the movie focuses on supporting. What we can't understand right now is, again, what that future looks like. And we're going to talk real quickly uh, to Pakistan because that plays a major role in the stability of the region. As we've seen, Pakistan's inability to control its own western border Uh, You can see the examples with where Osama bin Laden was hiding, as well as much of the facilitation routes that come into Afghanistan. Um, A more unstable Afghanistan leads to a more secure Pakistan. And that sounds really weird, but if we look at it as Afghanistan is friendly to the United States and Western democracies, and then you have India, Pakistan virtually sits in a sandwich of U.S. policy wonder bread. So in the event of conflict with India... Pakistan is completely and utterly surrounded, and a a less secure Afghanistan 
much like a less secure Iraq is good for Iran, is great for Pakistan because it establishes them as a regional power and provide buffers to potential strikes. So that's currently where negotiations are headed with the Taliban and uh, Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, is looking for ways to secure his, uh, his presidency after his five years are up. But Afghanistan has seen another attack on a civilian bus this week, so it, it's really throwing a wrench in these negotiations. Uh, in Afghanistan, in Balabolik district in Fara province, a bus struck a roadside bomb, killing 34 people. And as of right now, the United Nations estimates the war is responsible for 1,400 civilian deaths just this year alone, and several thousand Taliban and Afghan soldiers uh, joining them through the fighting. This attack comes after the UN reported fewer civilians were being killed by large explosive events and devices caused by the Taliban this year, and actually more were being killed by U.S. airstrikes and U.S.-supported operations the Afghanistan uh, National Army and police forces were conducting. The UN went on to say that U.S. airstrikes resulted in 363 civilian deaths and 156 injuries. The U.S. and Afghan allies rely heavily on those airstrikes, uh, which the reports say is increasing the toll on civilians in much higher collateral damage areas. So we're going to continue following this over the next couple months. Hopefully there is a peaceful resolution for Afghanistan and uh, democracy comes out ahead for those individuals trying to make a, a better and brighter future, especially after so much investment from America and its sons and daughters uh, in the military. We're talking some about China. The country continues to face backlash from Hong Kong and criticism across the country for its slowing economy and inability to quell the riots in Hong Kong. China's pointing the finger at the United States, who recently announced a 10% tax on nearly $300 billion worth of Chinese exports after negotiations last week failed that we reported on. China is pointing the finger at the United States for all its internal problems they're having, including the Trump administration's ban of telecommunications giant Huawei and investigating Google's ties to the Chinese military contracts. The propaganda machines in both the United States and China are fully oiled and charged for the blame game until the two can meet on a trade deal and reform. What we're seeing now is rather than military buildup be the catalyst for conversation, it's now an economic model. With China owning so much U.S. debt, their ability to dump that debt on the world market or back on the U.S. could really affect our economy. But conversely, they understand that a strong U.S. economy is, is great for them as they still have a, a very large and good, healthy GDP growth. We'll continue to follow this over the coming weeks. But until, again, the two can meet at the table and come up with an economic policy between them for trade, it's likely that this talk and these discussions will continue to escalate and feel more and more violent so much as it affects the bottom dollar line. Real quickly, back to Iran. If I gave you a list of three things that you think Iran might have done this week, one of them was capturing a drone, the other was capturing a tanker, or the third was, I don't know, trying to sell illegal oil. You could probably every week pick one of those and be correct. But this week, Iran has claimed it seized another foil, foreign oil tanker uh, this past Wednesday in the Persian Gulf, along with all seven members of the crew. Iran claimed the ship was illegally smuggling oil to other Arab states. 
but didn't offer any evidence to back up the seizure. The reported ship is an Iraqi ship, but we don't have any other information as of now to follow up and report for you on. Uh, we'll continue to follow this next week as I'm sure more information will come out as those sanctions from uh, 2017 continue to hit the regime. Our final global topic we'll talk about this week is the news coming out of the U.S. that we are pulling out of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, also known as the INF deal with Russia. The INF deal was originally drafted in 1987 and banned either side from stationing short-range and intermediate-range land-based missiles in Europe. Uh, this comes after a senior administration official who wanted to be uh, anonymous in his report with many news outlets said Russia deployed multiple battalions of Russian cruise missiles throughout Western Russia, which would be capable of reaching European targets. The original deal also banned uh, those land-based missiles with ranges effective uh, 500 to 5,500 kilometers. And now experts believe the collapse will undermine any other arms control agreements the two sides might have. And with forces now stationed in Europe specific with rotation training uh, as its primary task to limit some of the Russian aggression. It wouldn't be an understatement to think that we could see more brigades start going, uh, especially from you know the, the 18th Airborne Corps on the east coast of the U.S. So if you're someone out there that's just joined the military, you're in the military, I think this kind of action will lend itself to more rotations going through Europe and promoting a more Western, uh, strong environment in places like the Ukraine, uh, Germany, and uh, Lithuania, Latvia, uh, those nations that, that border large Russian influences. All right, in U.S. news, before we get to the deadly shootings, let's get some of the key information about the Democratic debates that we've been covering, as well as the presidential race uh, for the Democratic candidate out of the way and talk about Medicare and what that means. So this past week, we had the two debates uh, with 20 total candidates that were on the floor um, in the, the hosted event. On the first night of the debates, all the candidates focused heavily on healthcare and the border crossing. Two weeks ago, if you're interested in and new to the podcast, we covered the immigration process and homeland security and, and border patrol policy in our initial review. A lot of viewers saw a more moderate stance, however, this week from individuals, specifically guys like Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, he tried to stand out and avoided alienating potential disenfranchised Republicans. However, key standouts, uh, simply for the sake of having a more established names, were the only real high points for the Democratic Party that night. The other Democratic Party hopefuls will need a much larger, more explosive platform to really make a name uh, for him or herself, because night one, you had people like Senator Warren and Senator Sanders making it very clear they weren't going to give any way to those uh, centrists or more right-leaning Democrats trying to toe a, a moderate line. And as of right now, former Vice President Biden is that centrist left leader who was leading in all the polls. However, if people like Senator Klobuchar or Mayor Buttigieg can gain significant support from people like Midwestern voters, and individuals like Miss Harris or Senator Booker can gain ground in minority communities along both the East and West Coast, uh, as we see issues with 
Vice President Biden's race history and politics uh, is being criticized, then that field could eventually be, be blown up as the next debate, we only potentially have seven people on stage. And one of the things we want to get into for the race is the topic that was highlighted at the top of the segment on the subject of Medicare and healthcare. So let's quickly review what those terms mean uh, for you and what they mean for the country. In general, Medicare is a 52-year-old program which provides health insurance for Americans 65 and older or individuals with particular diseases or disabilities. Medicare for All is an update to Medicare, which would provide all individuals access to health care and also reduce deductibles and co-payments for drugs and visits. The plan calls for abolishing all private insurance, allowing the government to set prices for hospital costs and those payments. Uh, you also hear the term single-payer health care. That is the exact same thing as Medicare for All. That single-payer would be the government. Socialized medicine is something that Senator Sanders has brought up, and what that means is governments then run the hospitals uh, and medical providers, essentially eliminating all private insurance and the private industry and hundreds of thousands of jobs. So that would be a major drawback to something like that, although they say the offset loss from that cost would be you know, the consumers, the American public who have a better plan. And then the final option, would be a public option, uh, which allows employers and or individuals to choose private insurance or government insurance, provided pre-existing conditions do not limit that availability to each and every person. So that's kind of a rundown when you hear individuals talk about those topics. If you want to delve into it more, I implore you to go and read every single one of the platforms that the candidates hope to run on, and then let's see exactly how that might shift in the next three to six months as we whittle down this field and individuals might have to make concessions as to where they fall along the party line. So unfortunately, as we discussed, we have to talk about the horrific shooting in El Paso, uh, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, this past Saturday, killing a combined 29 people and wounding dozens more. More is going to definitely be released about the suspects in the week to come but more so about the victims and remembering those people that had their lives so viciously taken. The tragedy is going to draw, though, way more attention to gun rights as every single one of these mass shootings does in the United States. And we're not going to be the podcast that talks about it at depth because th that's not the point. You guys are educated enough to make uh, decisions for yourselves in understanding and reading the Constitution and then how those laws can be applied across the country, both for individuals that are pro and anti-gun rights. But one of the things we want to talk about are some of the questions that are going to come up that you can then pose to yourself or pose to the community and friends you have around you to spur an educated discussion. So the first question is, in a state where conceal and carry is so common, and you look at Texas because that is such a proud uh, gun-toting environment. There's tons of ranges, and everyone talks about their ability to arm themselves and defend. It's one of the things that you know Texans pride themselves on because when they initially won, you know, independence, it was on the backs of everyday Texans answering the call uh, to to come and defend their land. So, with something like that so common and being a claim. Uh, that reduced uh, the lack of mass shootings because everyone had 
uh, the means to defend themselves. Does being armed now even make a difference in these types of events against rifles or handguns? So a, a follow-up question for that could also be, while someone is armed, to what extent does their lack of military training or training environments similar to combat uh, play in really preparing them for actually employing his or her personal uh, firearm? Because if everyone is armed and the time comes that you have to defend yourself, if you can't, does that mean that we should have another conversation for either fewer guns in circulation or a requirement for different training to prepare people for it? And, and it's an awful thing to prepare for and everyone hopes that they're not put in that situation. But if you do have a weapon and you're entrusted to use it in your defense, if you're in a situation where someone is shooting at you or those around you and you weren't able to employ your weapon, what does that say about policy? Or if you had your weapon and because of that, you were able to safely defend people by not employing it, but because it was exposed, get them out of harm's way and provide a security region, does that still promote the idea that concealed carry is something that would limit and does limit further atrocities like this from happening? So food for thought. The second question, um, the, sus the suspect in Texas specifically was a white male and he was apprehended and unharmed. But something that we really have to look at is if you contrast that with hundreds of individuals in minority communities who are drawn on uh, by police and uh, some of them fired upon uh, much faster than that individual who just committed this uh, atrocious, atrocious crime and actually murdered people. Um, and another one being the guy that, that shot the church up years ago, does the safe apprehension of a man who's guilty in the eyes of media and the public of domestic terrorism safely indicate that there may be an implicit bias against persons of colors in minority communities when police interpret their actions uh, for something much more violent when none might exist, especially compared to, again, this event. Um, so one of the things that I've been looking at and reading are the, is the idea of implicit bias. And I'll leave that for you to, to educate yourself more on uh, with this website. So if you go and check out implicit.harvard.edu, they've got a ton of tests that they annually collect data on um, for many huge studies and topics that are relevant to today uh, in America, whether it is the discussion on uh, transgenders in the United States uh, to the uh, policies for race and immigration and they'll go through a whole series of questions and it'll kind of give you a good idea of where you might stand on the spectrum of understanding and having empathy for situations or where you might disagree wholeheartedly with the study saying this is you know what we're currently finding so again I implore you go out and do some reading do some soul searching and try to identify how we can have positive conversations in society when we actually review policy and we review things like this uh, to try to prevent them from happening again okay so this week we had a lot to cover I want to leave it on a much higher note than uh, the last US news topic kind of set us for and this week, we saw the release of Avengers Endgame on digital. Uh, so if you haven't seen it uh, and you want to see it, you can now download it for purchase or you can download it to rent 
It was an incredible movie. I'm super stoked that I got to see it. We talked about last week all the streaming services like Netflix competing with others like Amazon. I just finished The Boys this week. The Boys was an awesome, dark, superhero comic remake. I didn't know that kind of comic existed. Doesn't mean I'm going to go read it, especially if you made a series about it. I'll just wait for the next series. But I I thought it was a really cool, unique way to do it. And then finally, uh, the CrossFit Games were this weekend. Matt Fraser was the champion for the fourth year in a row, while Tia Claire Toomey won for her third straight year in a row, becoming the first woman to win three times and three consecutive years. CrossFit Freedom, uh, Mayhem Freedom, uh, Rich Froning's team, you might know him, four-time individual CrossFit male champion. They won after an absolutely dominating performance. And then a lot of great news for individuals on the podium. Noah Olson and Bjorgman Carl Goodmanson finished second and third, a first time they found themselves on the podium after being longtime favorites in the community with massive amounts of game experience. And then on the other side, Kristen Holta finished second for the women and Jamie Green third. So we had a very international podium for the women uh, and the men. And uh, the competition was really unique this year. If you didn't get a chance to, to watch it, we had, I think, 150 men and women from around the world. And after the first event, they cut the field down to 75. Two to three events later, they were down to 50. So by the time we got to Sunday, we only had the top 10 males, which meant, unfortunately, after seven or eight events, we saw many of the perennial favorites we've been following all year completely out of the competition. A lot of them had some things to say about the way the games were run this year, especially with points. And if you didn't have stellar performances in the first two to three uh, events, you were out of it. But what's really awesome is Chandler Smith, Army captain out of Fort Knox uh, on the Army CrossFit team. He did great. Uh, He ended up cracking the top 20. He finished as high as second place on one of the workouts. Super proud of him. Um, so the army's doing great things for fitness and, and he is just a great role model for anyone that wants to go out there and, and prove that they can perform on the world stage and still wear their uniform. That's going to be the final topic we'll close out on. Uh, super happy that you guys are tuning in. Let us know if there's something else in the news that we're not covering or you want to hear more on, but have a great week and check us out next Sunday for more great podcast content as well as brain body bobby for all the health topics that we continuously see on our uh, website you can check us out at www.chronosfit.org hit us up at chronosfit um, on our instagram or facebook or hq at chronosfit.org have a great week guys